1: Okay. Hello, beautiful people. Welcome back to Forever Young. I'm Dr. John Lakey. And I'm Dr. Payman Poor. And today uh, we're going to be talking about your specialty, uh, which is a wide range, but uh, we're going to focus on breast augmentation.
0: Yeah, very exciting. Um, very controversial too. Uh, what mm-hmm. we'll do today is is really talk. I'm going to take you through a consultation um, of how I do my breast augmentations. Uh, and what we'll do is, is really kind of keep this just the breast augmentation. There are things like breast implant illness. There's things like breast augmentation with a lift. There's other things, but we're really not going to touch on those. We'll do those in other podcast episodes because there are plenty of things to talk about. Right? Yeah, this now, can be pretty detailed. So. Just about breast augmentation.
1: Yeah. I agree with you. I think starting uh, similarly as the Rhinopasi come in and You know, let's say we're an an average person that's interested in breast augmentation. How do you normally see breast augmentation? How do you normally approach this uh, particular topic? Uh, Because we can we can run from in a million different directions from there.
0: So I really like to simplify everything. When a patient comes into the office, uh, first thing I'll, I'll ask them is, "How much do you know about breast augmentation?" And whatever they know, I tell them to forget about all of it because I'm, I'm really going to educate them. And just like you said, you want to educate the patient, prospective patient that's sitting across from you that is looking to get their nose done. I want to do the same because number one, breast augmentation is not for everyone. Number two, whoever's getting it done really needs to know the risks and benefits because it is a you're dealing with a device. It's very different than all the other procedures we do because we're actually putting an implant in that is a foreign body and it is a device, which really works differently for everyone. And some people really, it works very well and some people it doesn't. And, and that's why the first thing I say is, how much do you know? I have them completely erase their memory of anything else. And then I really just break it down before even examining them into Three points, and I tell them again: like everything, I try to do is very simple. Simplify it so it doesn't get too, um, too complicated for the patient. Number one, the implant. Mm-hmm. You're getting a breast augmentation, so we do have to talk about implants. And to really simplify it, there are two types of implants: mm-hmm. silicone. And saline. The outer shell is the same for both. What's inside is different. Now, there is a third kind that's saline and silicone. I don't use it. It's called the ideal implant. We're just going to talk about saline and silicone implants. Mm-hmm. Saline implants are just, it's just an implant filled with salt water. And a silicone implant is an implant filled with silicone.
1: And what, are, what benefits, if any, are there to
0: using a saline implant? Um, you know, <laughs> depends. For some people, they are scared of the silicone leak. Mm-hmm. Some people, which shouldn't be anymore because we have cohesive gel implants. That's the first thing. Second thing is if, 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 they, are, if, if they think there's a leak, you can actually detect it much easier. So if, if a saline implant does rupture, it just deflates mm-hmm. and it's salt water that just goes away. And you can use you can use a what's called a tuba transumbilical breast augmentation, which I don't do, or go through the axilla and use a very small incision because you can technically take this saline implant, roll it up like a little taco, put it in, and then inflate it. Mm -hmm. I'll be honest with you: in in thirteen almost thirteen years in practice, I've put in zero saline implants. Um, It doesn't mean we didn't do it before, but I am a very, very strong believer that I believe silicone implants are, I think they're better quality implant. They look better, they feel better. And now the safety profile is very good. So I have zero reservations using silicone for everyone. Mm -hmm. And if I show the implants to everyone, there are three different manufacturers that we use in the US. Sientra, Allergan slash Nutrel and Mentor, Um, and they make silicone and saline implants. With all of these implants, um, it's basically over the next couple of years, if not this year, I think all textured implants will eventually get pulled off the shelf and we'll just use round implants. But again, to just kind of simplify it, round is the shape, smooth on the outside, no texturing, and then on the inside, either saline or silicone. Now the sizes vary and the profiles vary. And it's simply put, a profile is goes from, let's just say, low, moderate to high. I'm not going to put in moderate plus and high, extra high. But all this means is a fixed volume with a low profile will be a wider base. And a high profile will be a narrower base. And what that does, it just gives you more projection, okay? So if you could think about it, a high profile implant fixed at 300cc will have more projection than a low profile implant fixed at 300cc. And these are all tissue-based measurements that we go by to find the ideal implant size for each individual patient.
1: So sometimes you would say maybe a low profile would go with someone who's got a wider breast and someone who's a very skinny individual, you'd go with a higher profile. Absolutely.
0: Depending on the sizes they're looking mm-hmm. for, obviously. Then the second thing um, that's important in a breast augmentation is the incision. And where do we make an incision? Now, if for me, I use two incisions, either around the areola, which is called a periareolar incision, or underneath the breast, which is called the inframammary incision. There are two other kinds that are called the transumbilical breast augmentation. Again, the tuba, through the belly button, blind procedure. I highly, highly uh, recommend that you do not get this uh, because there are a lot of complications with it. And then there's the transaxillary, which is through the armpit, some surgeons do this, and they get amazing results. I personally don't do them, um, but if that's something you're looking for, again it th- that can be done as well
1: yeah and, i mean listen and make no mistake you're trained to do all of them. Uh,
0: you just choose not to because you find the other two far superior absolutely and and there are, there are papers that are done by by bill adams who who who's you know arguably one of the guys who's done the most research on breast augmentation, and he says that you should only use an inframammary incision. Um, you know, again, some of the data shows that using that incision under the breast has the lowest complication rate. And this is something I tell all the patients. I tell people there's a, there's a little bit of a more co- higher complication rate because we're going through the ducts of the breast And it could lead to a higher infection rate. I will tell you in my hands, in all these years, I've never had an infection of a breast implant, thank God. Um, Knock on something. Uh, And maybe it's because we really take our time. We don't rush. We make sure we don't have bleeding. And we make sure we never touch the implant. I'll get to that in a minute. So that's the second important thing. And the third important thing is probably the most important thing. And this is where um, I always show a a schematic to, to people so they understand it and it's the position of the implant. So an implant can go in four positions. Over the muscle, under the breast tissue, which is called subglandular. It could go under the muscle completely, which is called submuscular, or it can go into a dual plane submuscular, which is basically releasing the muscle on the bottom of the of the pectoralis, or it can go under the fascia. Now, each one of these types of approaches and placement of the implants. As and, and,
1: in- sorry, just to c- clarify for those, the fascia is very thin but durable connective tissue that's surrounding the muscle. So that's why, you know, all our muscles have it. That's why uh, regardless of how big or small it is, you know exactly what a calf muscle looks like. You know exactly
0: what a bicep looks like. Absolutely. And, and the subfascial breast augmentation is something that, that started about 25 years ago by a surgeon in Brazil by the name of Ruth Graf. Um, and it's a brilliant technique. And I'll get into that in a bit. And the, the reason there are these approaches, and each one has its positives and each one has its negatives. Now, for years and years and years, and I tell all of my patients the same thing, if you went to a plastic surgeon, especially even now, everyone will tell you, or most people will tell you, you have to go under the muscle. Well, that's not necessarily true, and I think this is where each individual is different, and that's why I like to individualize each patient. Because and
1: and why would you say why do what's the main reason for them that they say you have to go under the muscle? What are they doing?
0: What are you what are you doing with that? So, really, there's a the reason we wanted to go put an implant under the muscles. So there's coverage. You want something to cover the implant so it doesn't look fake. Now, in in most people's minds somebody that comes up, gets a breast augmentation is completely flat. That's well, not the case. Okay. But if you come in to, to get a breast augmentation, you have very thin skin, you have minimal breast tissue. Well, if I put an implant above the muscle, well, you're going to see this, this round implant, it's going to look really obvious. So that's why for, for a very long time, It just was normal place to say, let's put the implant under the muscle, but then what we'll do is we'll create a dual plane, which means release the muscle so you don't get the implant sitting up very high and you don't get an abnormal amount of what's called muscle animation. Because if you think to yourself, if you look at yourself and you just flex your pec muscle, you see how it just flexes, it goes up and down. Imagine if there was something under it. Well, it would force it to go up and down. And that's one of the downsides of the of this under-the-muscle or submuscular breast augmentation. Mm-hmm. Now, it hurts a tiny bit more, but nothing bad. People normally go about their life the next day after this, and most people take Tylenol and no narcotics. Um, and what you were talking about, that implant animation, I mean,
1: you see all over the place, especially in California, uh, you know, at the gym, you see someone who's very muscular or very athletic and as they're, you know, performing an exercise that involves the pectoralis muscle, all of a sudden the implant distorts and dances. And, mm-hmm. you know, you see it from people at the beach getting up from a beach towel. Uh, you know, it's one of those things where it's kind of a
0: dead giveaway. <laughs> took it out. Of, um, took the words so. out of my mouth. No, exactly. It's, it's a dead giveaway. And you don't want people to know you've had a breast augmentation. So that was one of the reasons not to go under the muscle. But again, each person gets completely individualized. Now, if you come in and you have relatively thick skin, a good amount of breast tissue, well, then things change. You don't have to put it under the muscle because you just need something to cover it, and the fascia does a great job of covering the implant. Now, the way I go about it is it depends on the size, it depends on the frame, and it depends on the pinch and and the thickness. If there's good fullness of the breast tissue, if there's good skin quality and thickness, I love doing a subfascial breast augmentation because there's no animation, the implant doesn't sit high, it drops into place, minimal downtime, and really it's a very natural appearing result. And still
1: has some coverage to it. I mean, you know, for all the nays, I'm sure there are people out there, you know, I know that say the subfascials don't work, there is no fascia, there's nothing... um, but you know that's not
0: the case. No, there's there's a lot of papers that have written all from all over the world. It's not just from Brazil anymore. So it's really a good way to do it. Now, after I do this, I'll do my own measurements. So after we discuss this and I show this on the board and the screen and show them the difference between the subfascial and the submuscular, and you feel the implants and see the difference between the three manufacturers, see which one ripples more, which one doesn't. Then what I do is do my own measurements and then we go into another room where we do what's called a vector 3D imaging. Now, I highly, highly recommend anyone who's having a breast augmentation. You have to do this because this is the best way to take the guessing game away from sizing. If you read any article on breast augmentation, any scientific article, the number one biggest complaint is size. Either they went too big or they went too small. And for years and years and years, there was no way. So when we first started practice, one of our consultants told us to fill a bag up with lentils and put it in someone's bra. And I said, you're kidding me. You want me to put a bag of lentils in someone's bra? This is insane. So we'd size with these weird sizers and all of this... It nothing really worked mm-hmm. up until. I
1: Maybe, don't know. Yeah, the company would come in. The rep would say, "All right, use these sizers," and they look like these little, you know, from chicken cutlets all the way up to these, you know, strange half breasts uh, that you'd put
0: in their bras. That it was just this awkward. Uh, and it never fitting. gave an indication of what you look like. Mm-hmm. Now this actually takes a picture of you, throws it up on a screen, and we can show you exactly. To a degree, obviously, but what different sizes look on your body? There's no other way to do this and get a better understanding as to what you can expect. Really, there isn't because, you know, I could say you're going to look great with a 300cc implant, but then you wake up and say, oh, wow, this is way too small or way too big. This way, we take the guessing game out and we get to be on the same page. So the patient and I get this conversation started on how big they want to be.
1: I thought it was really interesting, the Vectra um, and what it does. It, it actually calculates the asymmetry. It'll tell you, you know, what part is the chest wall. It'll tell you how much more uh, number of CCs one breast has during the other. And so it it really helps with planning. I mean, obviously, you know, you don't always want to put in two separate implants based off of that, um, you know, for reasons you'll probably get into. But um, you know, it gives you, if you see a discrepancy, it's much easier right off the bat to, when you're in surgery to say,
0: I expected this, I have the appropriate implants. Like, see, and that's exactly what I tell everyone. I say, I go over some of the measurements with you and some of the things in this program, but the rest of the stuff I do the night before, I'll pull it up, I'll take a look just to make sure you use technology to your benefit. And really, do it so when you get into surgery, you don't keep saying to yourself, well, I thought they were the same size. Why does this one look bigger? You know, that's the first thing. We hope you're enjoying this episode. If you'd like more information about our practice, you can check out our Instagram. It's plasticstocks P-L-A-S-T-I-X-D-O-C-S on Instagram for more information. Dr. Daniel Poor and I will be back after a quick break. The other thing I make the patients do, after we do the simulation, I tell them, number one, we don't just stick to the size you're talking about. In surgery, I size everyone. So what's important is putting sizers in because, again, technology is great and we know it works. But I want to make sure that in real time, in vivo, it's going to look like it did outside the body. On the screen. So I'll create my dissection. I'll put an empty implant in on both sides. Then I'll sit you up and then I'll get a good idea. Number one, if my dissection is done complete and if it's symmetric. Number two, if the size is right, if I need to put two different sizes, if they're the symmetric, if one needs to be opened up a little bit more, this really, number one, eliminates the errors of putting an implant and taking it out multiple times. And number number two really gives you that exactly perfect, perfect symmetric result at the end of the case. Mm -hmm. So once we do that, and and then I tell them, I'll tell them this during the consultation. I also tell them if they're going to do this with me, I want them to send me inspiration photos. Because again, like we talked about, even though I do a full simulation with them, sometimes their thoughts, they'll send me a picture that's three times as big. And that's where the conversation opens mm-hmm. with people as to having, you know, number one goals that fit their body and that give them long-lasting results. Because breast augmentation can be one of these things, just like everything else in plastic surgery. If you're not guided properly and you don't have a surgeon that's holding your hand properly, it can be a very, very, very bad and ugly road of skin's getting stretched, you're getting stretch marks, you need a lift, you get capsular contracture. It just could be a disaster. That's why you need a good, um, kind of, a, in a way a confidant, somebody who's going to truly teach you about it so you don't go too big. So it is appropriate. So it does age properly with you. And that's one thing I sit down and talk to people at length during the breast augmentation consultation.
1: Yeah, it helps, you know, again, to have an expert in the field such as yourself, plus have a personable uh, surgeon
0: so you can open that dialogue and um, feel comfortable with your surgeon. Absolutely. And then the other thing is people that come in and, and and have been told that an implant will lift their breast. And, it's, and, it's, and it does, it does lift their breast, but to a degree. Some people are come come in and after they've breastfed and they think by just putting a really big implant in, it's going to lift their breast, fill their breast out, and it's going to look great. But actually it does the opposite. It lifts their breast and it fills their breast, but then it drops them down and you're going to end up needing a lift later. Mm-hmm. So that's just a little tiny pearl I put in. Then, then it comes down to the actual surgery. Um, and surgery is, is, a, is a pretty straightforward operation. It takes about an hour and an hour and a half. And like I said, it's between either a, a three centimeter incision underneath your breast, which is tiny, or a, like a half moon incision around the pigmented and non-pigmented border of the areola. And depending on whether or not I'm going under the muscle or under the fascia or doing a dual plane, generally speaking, the surgery takes the same amount of time. And you're, you recover in the recovery room for about 20 to 30 minutes, and you're out of there. Uh, I want to say about 90 to 95% of the breast augmentations I've done over the last couple of years have not taken any narcotics. Everyone takes Tylenol and only Tylenol. And the reason for that is because I do what's called an intercostal nerve block. Now, this intercostal nerve block is done before every chest case that I do, so every breast operation. And it just puts strategically little bits of pain medicine that numbs the nerves that supply sensation to the breast. So the intercostal nerves are the nerves that basically supply sensation to the breast. So if I put a little bit of medicine in there for at least the first couple of days, because I'm using a long acting anesthetic, people will feel very, very comfortable. Then after that, go home and take it easy. Now, the downtime is minimal. I tell people that literally you can go out to dinner the next night, but I do hold people back. If it's a subfascial, I don't want any exercise with the upper body for a month. If it's a submuscular, it's six weeks. I don't want any swimming, any going into any body of water or any soaking whatsoever because those incisions that I make become watertight at six weeks. Now, Breast augmentation sounds like eh, it's easy. You put an implant in and you're done, right? Problem is, these are devices, and that's when we get into what can go wrong. And speaking of devices,
1: um, you know, I wanted you to comment on the the type of implant that you actually use because I know. Listen, in 2006, um, you know, they reapproved the silicone implant, which we thought was far superior, and it still was a silicone polymer or elastomer, and Um, you know, had a, not necessarily a liquid type of gel because that was, you know, what everybody's concerned about, the leak of liquid silicone. Um, But it was a form of uh, a cohesive component. But I know that you use something that's a
0: little different. So I use exclusively for everyone, fully gummy bear implants. So this means that if we take the implant and we cut it down the middle and we squeeze it, it's just like a gummy bear. You've been into a gummy bear before and it doesn't leak, right? It stays within its shell. And what's, what's good about this is really a couple of things. Number one, there is far less rippling. So sometimes when you see really skinny girls who have breast augmentation, you could see kind of what we call rippling or like little, little waves, um, either on the lateral, medial, inferior aspect of the breast. That's just the bag of the implant that's not fully filled up and, and it's, it's really hard to take a silicone implant and completely fill it. The second thing is if it does rupture, it doesn't get all over the place. And that's really important. And that was the biggest fear for years and years. That's why I was pulled off the shelf. And even when we started training, we didn't have silicone implants. We only used saline implants during training. And then towards the end of our training, we were allowed to use, I'm sorry, no, we had them before we started training. 2006. So right when we went, went into training, we started using silicone implants. My bad.
1: Yeah. Well, in general surgery, you yeah. know, it was saline. And then yes. by the
0: time we graduated, that's when they reintroduced it. And yeah, so absolutely. that's where we got it. And it's, and it's interesting because we will hit on breast cancer reconstruction and we'll talk about that as well. But silicone implants are completely safe in breast cancer reconstruction as well because of how well they're made now um and so so basically you get this you you get your breast augmentation you ride off into the sunset and you're happy and probably 90 plus percent of the patients are like that now there's about five to ten percent depending on where you read your numbers in the literature that can have some sort of complication and the thing I talk to everyone about this about breast augmentation is this number one be prepared to have another operation sometime in your life. You're getting a device placed inside your body. This device, number one, may need to be changed. May You may want to make it bigger. You want to make it smaller. You may have changes in your body habitus. You may have had babies. It may have sagged. You may want bigger ones with a lift. There's a lot of things that can happen in your life. So please be open to that. Because if you're not open to that, having a breast augmentation is probably <laughs> not a good idea. You'll be disappointed. Uh, the second thing is, is you know, complications that can happen. And, and when I say complications is, what if the implant sits a little too far lateral? What if this implant sits too far inferiorly? What if, you know, which is called bottoming out. There's all these things that can happen and there are reasons for them. Sometimes it's because the implant's too big. Sometimes it's a surgeon's uh, kind of miscue. And and all of these things can be remedied, but that's these are the reasons that, for example, I see patients still that I've done six years ago, seven years ago, on a yearly basis to make sure they're okay. Most common questions that I have asked from me are, number one, can I still breastfeed? I get a 22, 23-year-old girl that comes in and says, I want a breast augmentation. I'm going to have babies. Can I breastfeed? And my answer is pretty much the same for everyone. There's about 20, 25% of the population that cannot breastfeed. This number does not change with with breast augmentation. Most of the time, if you can If you can breastfeed prior, you're still going to breastfeed after. And interestingly enough, I had a patient that came in not too long ago that you and I did surgery on. And she came in, she just had her second kid like a year and a half before. And she said, my breasts are sagging. And she was set up for breast augmentation and mastopexy. Mastopexy is a big word for a breast lift. And she came in, beautiful results, six weeks, Okay, you can exercise, you can do everything else. She shows up at her three month and she looks at me and she goes, I'm pregnant. And am I going to ruin my results? And I said, no, there's nothing you can do. They may change, they may not. You may be happy, you may not. I don't know what's going to happen, but don't come see me for another six months. Worry about your baby. Has her baby and comes and sees us six months after she had the baby. She told me, number one, she breastfed, no problem. And we actually rearranged breast tissue. So we actually did a breast lift on her, and she still had the ability to breastfeed, number one. Number two, her breast looked exactly the same. So I was pleasantly surprised. This was the one case that I was very happy. So, with that said, everyone's different, but the chances of breastfeeding after breast augmentation are going to be there. And I think you'll be fine. Um, number two, uh, are these implants going to last forever? Do I have to change them? And it's very interesting because if you ask me, I say, you may never have to do anything. Breast implant manufacturer tells us that every 10 years we should change the implants, but we take implants out that have been in for 30 years and they come out perfectly fine. So in in a lot of ways, I tell people, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Come, do your yearly checkup, make sure you're okay. And We will continually do surveillance. And if we think there's something wrong or we think we should change them, then I'll let you know. One other question is very common is, what about breast cancer? Can you detect breast cancer? Can I get mammograms? What do I need to do? And, you know, there's absolutely no problem. And if you think about this, getting mammograms with breast implants because we do breast cancer reconstruction with breast implants. So if there's an issue to have a breast implant in, if there's cancer, well, we're doing the wrong thing, right? Um, But an even more sensitive way, because a lot of women hate getting their breasts squished in and they think it hurts when they get a mammogram, is to get an MRI. It's actually more sensitive. Um, You can see everything and you can see the integrity of the implant. That's another really good way to see if the, breast, if, if the breast implant is compromised in any way. And uh, an MRI will show you the, the integrity of the implant, will show you if the shell is broken, will show you if there's a leak, and that's an easy way to detect if there's any complications whatsoever. Um, now, with that said, people come in and, and, and they say, what can go wrong? And my big thing with what can go wrong is I tell everyone the same thing you do. Number one, you may not like it. You may think this doesn't look good. And how often does that happen? Very, very, very rarely. Um, I think out of all the thousands of breast augmentations we've done, I think I've taken maybe two or three out over the years that they haven't liked it and they just want it to become more au naturel. Um, but the one reality and the, and, the, and the one thing that does need to be discussed is something called capsular contracture. Capsule contracture um, is basically simply put scarring of the scar tissue around an implant. Now, when you put any implant in someone's body, whether it's a breast implant or a butt implant or even the chin implant we talked about in in a previous episode, um, there is a, a film of scar tissue that goes around this implant because your body realizes it's a foreign body. 90 plus percent of the time, depending on whose hands you're talking about, There's no problem. It's a thin capsule. Breasts move freely with your body. It doesn't look any different and you're fine. Unfortunately, in in a smaller subset of the population, this scar tissue around the implant can become firm and it can squeeze the implant itself and displace it superiorly. So bring it up higher and make it harder. So, and this is something that happens and it happens to the best of the best of the best. And to this day, we still don't know why. Now, there are theories of biofilm formation, bacteria formation, Um either there's blood in the pocket or there's bacteria in the pocket, there's something in there that causes it. There's also some theories that say there's certain people that just form worse scars. There are certain subsets of the population, whether they're Asian or African-American, that heal worse. Do
1: you do anything differently uh, to try to lessen the risk of developing
0: a capsule contraction? Absolutely. And and again, the the beauty of, of some of this is, you know, we have videos on YouTube and, and on Instagram showing this, but the surgery is done bloodless, slow and steady. Make sure you don't get any blood. So, t- in order to have a nice, successful breast augmentation, this is what you want no blood in the pocket, a very, very nice dissection. If you're going on in the muscle, make sure the muscle's pulled up properly. You don't pull up the serratus, they're not multiple different uh, uh, fields that you're kind of opening up. You wanna be in the right plane for all of this. Keep it nice and clean. And then when you're ready for the implant, triple antibiotic irrigation, betadine soak, and then use what's called a no-touch technique. So never touch the implant. Implant comes out of the box, goes into something called a Keller funnel, or it's just a breast sleeve or the implant funnel. There's a bunch of different ones. And literally just squeeze it right in and you're done. Mm, this way, like a cake froster. Exactly, and this <laughs> way, and it makes it easier too because you can use a, people ask me sometimes, how do you use the tiny incision to get a bigger implant in? I'm using a cake froster and I'm squeezing in an implant that's big into a small hole and it goes really nicely. Now, by using these steps, you really kind of mitigate the, the complication rate. You really kind of help yourself not have, you know, these problems that you would after. Now, again, like I said, there's, there's been no infections thus far because I, I'm very, very um, strict on the way we like to do these. Um, then with that said, you know, if you have a capsular contractor and we can discuss this on, on, on another podcast. But if you have one, it's treatable. It's not the end of the world. You go in, you take the scar tissue out and you put a new implant out and hopefully you won't get it again. You ride off into the sunset. Maybe something happened in that one operation that caused it, but sometimes you really don't know why.
1: Is there anything else you can do uh, before you would take the back and remove capsule? I know you usually put people on a regimen.
0: So everyone that gets gets breast augmentation surgery um, is put on Something called singular. Singular is is a is is a medicine that we use for for asthma, um, but it's really is, is an kind of an immune modulator. Modulator, in a sense, it it it's an anti-inflammatory. It brings down inflammation, especially for people that have asthma, but. It's been shown that it decreases capsular contracture formation. So I like to use it five days before, 25 days after. There have been some good studies that have shown that this does decrease the rate of capsular contracture. It also is used to treat it sometimes. And if you have a grade two or three, you maybe can reverse it and not have the problem.
1: Mm-hmm. We've seen that. You, know, you have a patient that comes in. Some people... Listen, they're ultimately going to need surgery, but uh, you know, you've know you had multiple that come in, you give Singular, and they avoid surgery altogether, which is fantastic. Absolutely. Hello, beautiful people. To celebrate the launch of Forever Young, we'd like to offer our listeners a special discount on our premium line of skincare products at beverlyhillsmd.com.
0: Go to beverlyhillsmd.com and use the promo code foreveryoung 20 To get 20% off your first order, that's beverlyhillsmd.com, promo code FOREVERYOUNG20. Please share, rate, and review on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Be right back after this break. I think if if there are some take-home tips on... Breast augmentation. Number one, I think that whoever you have surgery with, make sure that they're really going with tissue-based measurements, meaning your chest is a certain size. Don't try to put an implant that's like six times the size into this small pocket. It's not going to look good because then you run into other problems like synmastia. Synmastia is when the implants literally touch in the middle. So there's no cleavage and you just have one breast or the uniboob. And that's a very difficult thing to fix. And these are the things that happen when, you know, I'm, I'm sorry to say, but you go to people that don't have experience because they'll do stuff, because they're trying to push the limit and give you really good cleavage, but they don't realize that if you go too close, you're actually going to breach the, the, the midline and you're going to end up causing one breast. Um, you know, those are the things that you have to make sure that, that the implant size matches your body. And I talk to people about this all the time. Don't go too big. By going too big, you're going to look top heavy. By going too big, you're going to increase the chances of having complications. And these complications are simastia, bottoming out, Capsular contracture, malposition—you have you can have it fall laterally, or breastosis, which is sagging of the breast. So all these things by having a really big, big implants. Now, don't get me wrong; there's nothing wrong with big, breasts, and if that's something you want, it's fine as long as it matches your body dimensions, because you don't want to look top heavy either, right? You know, it was so funny in the beginning of
1: our practice. Um, you know, we used to do a lot of breast procedures together. And I think it was kind of a standing joke in the city. I think we put in the lowest uh, size v- implants overall about all the other practices um, just because we were very conservative and we tried to keep... Is there is there a limit to a size that you will put in or would you say there's an average size
0: that you put in? I think my average size is between 250 and 300. Um, it, again, it all depends on who you're operating on. If you've got little... Victoria's Secret models that don't want anyone to know they've had a breast augmentation. Well, you're never going to go big. Sure. You know, and it's funny because there's some girls that have come in, some some gorgeous models between, their, between 20 and 25, and they pushed me. They pushed me. They pushed me to go bigger, and I kept saying no, and I kept saying no. All of them came back, and I went smaller. <laughs> and it's funny because you're like, because you don't want... You don't want to keep going back in the pocket. You don't want to say, oh, man, okay, so I went too big. Let's go back and put it. Because every time you do that, you increase your risk of having problems. Sure. So you do want to get it right the first time. But it is funny what you said, though. We we do – I think it's a lot more tasteful and classy to put in implants that nobody can tell you've had a breast augmentation. Yeah. And if you want to – and I'll, I'll never forget this is a term you used to use – if you want, you could choke yourself out and just put a, a, a push-up <laughs> bra and and, and, and and your breasts will come up and they'll look so pretty. And then if you want to look really classy and not wear a bra and have a low-cut dress, you can pull that off too. Sure. And more than anything, you don't look matronly and you don't look top-heavy. And that's one thing that, that if your surgeon doesn't tell you this— you won't know. And then you'll come back and say, man, they went too big. If I tell you how many people came here and they said, I had my breast. I'm doing one tomorrow. removal replacement on a girl who hates her size. She's like, I woke up and I was two sizes bigger than I wanted.
1: Well, it's so funny because we heard so many stories of uh, of girls who came in or women who came in. And they said, I told my surgeon, this is what I wanted. I wanted a C cup. And I came out with a double D. Or we, we chose a particular size, uh, but it's clearly not one that i wanted i was promised something else whether it was the sizing or you know something didn't quite work out that's why the vector is so important but um you know it's almost as though there are other surgeons out there that literally have one implant sitting in back and that's what you get and uh you know when you come back they're too large but they say well they they look they look beautiful um but you know that's not really what you offer let me ask you something else i think um you know a, a very common question would be what's what's the youngest? How old do you have to be to get an implant? What would you say, you know, as far as giving recommendations? I mean, I know the studies really show that silicone implants shouldn't be given for anyone who's, you know, less than 21 years of age. But, you know, what would you say uh, to those individuals? You so know, what,
0: 18 is really the number where someone can come and do whatever they want, in mm-hmm. a sense. Um, you know, the, the 20... 22. There was a huge study that showed 22 for silicone, the first one. And it was just random because they just used the number 22 and above, and it just didn't make any sense. I think,
1: yeah, that was the youngest patient in that study. And it was like, it didn't make any sense.
0: But really, there are some people that need breast augmentation for major asymmetries. I did a 16-year-old, I think maybe a couple months ago who had Horrible tuberous breast deformity. I mean, she's she was just depressed, so she needed a breast implant mm-hmm. as a reconstructive procedure. And again, we'll get into that, and and we'll do a we'll do a whole podcast on tuberous mm-hmm. breasts and breast recon and, and breast lifts and mm-hmm. things like that because it's very different, and you can talk about it forever and ever. But I do think anything over eighteen, um, as long as they're they're in the, the right headspace, I think, um, and I, I think it's fine. Um, again. It's funny that you brought that up. I remember, I think it's about six or seven years ago, I got a Yelp review from a patient that came to see me, booked surgery with me. And in her pre-op, I refused to go as big as she wanted. I remember. So she canceled and she went and she wrote a review and she gave me a four-star review. And she said, this guy was absolutely amazing, except he wouldn't go as big as I wanted. And I'm like, yes. (laughs) Because honestly, it's, it's- integrity you're and you're an advocate you're you you are the surgeon here so if you tell somebody that it's okay to do something and i know me and you look at some pictures and some people and you i mean you're like whoa you know whether it's it's the booty or or the breast or whatever it is it's not necessarily bigger is not necessarily always better and if there's only one thing you take home from this podcast about breast augmentation is make sure the implants fit your body. Mm-hmm. You don't need to make them that much bigger. I, I took care of a lady who, who, who had double stacked implants because she wanted to go so big. And it was such a mess that it, you couldn't even fix it. It just was unfixable without putting major scars on the breast and really kind of tightening the skin. And sometimes there is a point in no return if you go too big. Um, and I think that's important. And, and if I was going to say, listen, if you're, if you're looking for a, a breast augmentation surgeon, um, kind of very similar, similar to rhinoplasty. Number one, look at multiple views before and afters. Look at a lot of before and afters. There are a lot of different types of breasts. See if they, they match your type of aesthetic. Um, see if you have a good rapport with the surgeon and 100% do a Vectra 3D simulation because this is the way you get the conversation started. You make sure that the sizing's on the right path. And at the end of the day, you chose your size yourself with the surgeon. And lastly, from, from here is don't necessarily get stuck on cup sizes. Um, I'll never forget the beginning of, of residency. I was reading the chapter on breast augmentation and literally, or breast reduction actually. And it said, you cannot rely on cup size. Cup size varies from manufacturer to manufacturer. It's more on measurements. Now I know ladies out there, you don't measure your own breasts all the time. Um, and you don't know what the base width is, but that's what we do for you. Um, I don't think you can get caught up on it because if you go to Victoria's Secret, a C cup for maiden form may be a double D. So don't ever get caught up with that. Just look at your own dimensions, see how it fits your body, see how comfortable you are with it. Um, and with that said you know I think I think it's a it's a great procedure to give confidence to fill the breast out if you don't have breast tissue um, if you've had pregnancies and and you feel like your breasts have deflated not sagged but deflated um, or just anyone you know if some people come in and they have two different breasts I mean I have so many times where I see Breast dog, somebody comes in that has two completely different sized breasts. You mm-hmm. need to put an implant in to get it better. I wish we can do it um, without, without one. But mm-hmm. the best thing we have right now is a breast implant. I'm going to touch for a minute on an alternative way to do this um, without an implant. And lately, there's, there's a lot of people that have come into my office for, for removal of their implants because there has been a lot of talk about something called breast implant illness, Breast implant illness is a series of, of non-specific complaints like fatigue and joint pains and and cloudiness and, and just a, an overall sense of not feeling right that they can't really attribute to anything else. And they attribute it to having breast implants. So they want to have it taken out. Now, I don't know how many I've taken out, but I've taken out a ton. A lot of them were, were not my own patients. Number one, These patients that come in and have breast implant illness, if they think it's their breast implant, if they don't have a capsular contracture, their capsule does not need to be removed, okay? It doesn't matter who's telling you what, but the last major white paper that came out said you do not take capsules out unless there's a capsular contracture. So don't go through a very lengthy, difficult procedure that you don't need to have. Number two, there is an alternative to breast implants. They're not as good and it's not as reproducible Um, and and not necessarily um, as consistent, but fat transfer. Using fat from one part of your body and putting it in another has been used for a very long time. We've been doing it very successfully in breast cancer reconstruction for multiple years now, and we've deemed it to be safe radiologically, which is very important because for a while, we couldn't delineate the difference between fat necrosis or fat and cancer. Now we can easily delineate this. So we know if someone's had breast cancer reconstruction with fat transfer, if they do a mammogram or an MRI, they know that that's fat and that's not a new cancer. So, with that said, if you take your implants out or if you never get implants, you can have liposuction on an area, which we do regularly, whether it's your abdomen, flanks, abs, arms, legs, whatever. And we can get this, this volume which is like a 250 cc implant volume and we can inject the same thing into your breasts. Now, how reliable is this? I'm tell you maybe about 70% of the fat takes and it depends on your lifestyle. Depends on how you maintain your weight. It depends if you're fluctuating up and down with your weight. And it also depends on you know what you do. If you're a smoker, you know, a lot of other types of 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 variables that can lead to fat resorption or fat take. But it is a good way if you're completely against implants and you want some volume, that's a nice way to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you think?
1: Yeah, listen, I, I think this was educational. I mean, the idea is it's kind of like we're simplifying. You, you simplified the three main things, the type of implant, you know, how you get it in, where you put it, And then, you know, talking about the potential risks. And I think that alone is enough to have anyone who's interested in breast augmentation surgery or fat transfer or anything else come in and be equipped with some of the basics so they know what to ask. I agree with you. I think that the 3D simulation is paramount because, uh, again, we're very visual beings. And unless, you know, there can be so much lost in the translation that uh, for you to see it, agree on it with the physician— gives you a much better handle on what to expect afterwards. If you agree on a 300cc implant because it looks good, you see it, not based off of what it sounds like or because your girlfriend got 350. You know, that was one of the most common things that was brought up and and it's so frustrating because, you know, everybody's uh, proportions are different and everybody starts off with slightly different breast tissue. So the very fact that you love your friend's breast, she got a 350cc does not necessarily mean that's what you need, and so that's where I think the three D simulation comes in. So I don't and, know if there's you know, anything there's, you want
0: to. There's there's one thing I kind of left out, which is important. Um, last year there's there was some issues, and and one of the implant manufacturers had to withdraw one of their implants. Um, it's a textured implant made by by a company called Allergan, and it was called it was causing a, a rare type of of cancer called ALCL. Um, this is. This was caused only by these textured shaped implants, okay? Um, And I've never used them. I've never used textured implants, probably because of a product of my training. But the difference between textured and shaped implants is the following, basically. Textured implants have like a salted texture on the outside. And the reason they have that is because they want your tissue to grow into it so it doesn't move. So it's interesting to me because it's completely counterintuitive to the way I look at a breast. I think a breast should move with your body. If you lay down, it should fall a little to the side. If you stand up, it should move with you. Whereas textured implants never did that. And I think this this inflammatory reaction, for some people, it was such a... In, in, in intense inflammatory reaction that it caused this ALCL. Now, it's remedied very easily by taking out the implant and the capsule. Um, and normally that does, does the trick. It doesn't mean that if you have a textured implant, you have to have it taken out. Um, that's one thing I'm going to just kind of beat home with you guys. If you have a textured implant, you don't have to have it taken out. But if you're having issues with it, go ahead. My patients that come in here that have textured implants, and if they're and I tell them, Eh, might as well, just for safety reasons, the company is allowing you and giving you free implants. Take the old ones out, put in new, smooth implants, just so at least you can sleep without even worrying for a second that you have an implant that's been recalled. Mm -hmm. The ones from the other companies have not been recalled, but I think soon enough, textured implants are going to be a thing of the past because, again, you want them to move with your body. Yep. Yeah, I agree with you. Now, we are we're always available for questions again, like I told you, you know, these these episodes that we go over, we just want to hit the the important parts of each topic. There's a lot more to talk about. And we'll go over breast implant illness during an episode. We'll go over, you know, capsular contracture, treatment for complications, all sorts of fun breast augmentation related uh topics, but in a nutshell, I think that's that's a quick, concise way of knowing about breast augmentation 101.
1: Definitely. And so listen, I hope you guys enjoyed it as well. Uh, stay tuned for our next podcast. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Again, this is Forever Young. I'm Dr. John Lakey.
0: And I'm Dr. Payman Poor. Tune in to iHeartRadio app or to Apple Podcasts or anywhere you listen to your podcasts. Peace. From iHeartRadio, Forever Young is a Cavalry Audio Golden Hippo production. We are produced by Brandon Morgan. Josh Windish does our editing and mixing.
1: Payment and I serve as executive producers along with Dana Brunetti and Keegan Rosenberger.